Thank you, Randy. Good morning, Church of the Red Door family. It is so good uh, to be with you this morning. I'm excited about progressing on through this study of Luke. Uh, last week, we're kind of doing a small two-part series as we saw this amazing, amazing moment in the ministry of Jesus, and not just in the ministry of Jesus, but I think as we look back, we can see this is a seminal moment in uh, the complete unfolding of why we exist who we are and the purposes that God has for us. Jesus, if you'll remember from last week, had gone into Nazareth. He had already done some amazing things in Capernaum. His, he was beginning to, his fame was beginning to spread a little bit. And he goes into the synagogue, if you'll remember last week, into Nazareth and begins to read from the scroll. They handed him the scroll. He unfolds it, un, uh, uh, unfolds it and begins to read from uh, Isaiah chapter 61. And then he sits back down he essentially says, look, these things are being fulfilled in your hearing. And it was an amazing moment. And now we're going to look at their response. And I think uh, we ha can learn some amazing things from their response. Have you ever found yourself in your own faith walk to be, to be fickle, to be strange, to be duplicitous, to be kind of really impassioned one day and you're going to give your whole life to Jesus and really follow him? And then the next week, you just find yourself in some strange emotional place and you begin to question your faith. I mean, we are, we are a fickle lot, as was Israel, but we can learn some things from the way that Israel responded, not only to the prophets in advance of Jesus, but to Jesus himself. And I think there's some insightful things that we can glean. Again, and I always refer back to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says all these things about Israel and their exodus and the lifeblood of who they were and their calling, we can learn from these things. All these things were written for our instruction. In other words, as Israel made mistakes, as they were fickle, as they responded to Jesus, we have to be cautioned. It's a cautionary tale that we don't, in fact, respond in similar ways. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go back to Luke chapter 4, and then we're going to pick it up in verse 22. So again, if you remember, he reads from the prophet Isaiah, this is, this is the moment, this is being fulfilled, everything that Isaiah was talking about, it's being fulfilled in me. This is that moment. Listen to their response, and, and it's, a, it's a weird story, it just is, but we're going to try to unpack what was going on, what was going on in their hearts, why was Jesus responding as he responded, we're going to look at that this morning. Okay, verse 22, look forward, verse 22. And all were speaking well of him. So the immediate response was, oh, this is fantastic. In fact, this is a hometown boy because Jesus grew up in Nazareth. This is one of our kind. I mean, I remember just local news here in the Valley. I'd uh, gotten to play in a big tournament or something, and they had kind of written a few little articles uh, at the Desert Sun. And this is kind of a, this is one of our hometown guys. And I, I was a small fish. We had a lot bigger fish in this valley. It's filled with golf professionals. But occasionally when somebody would do well in their desert residence, he's kind of, this is one of our guys. And they, and now this is one of our guys. And they had already heard about Jesus as we had spoken about earlier. And they were speaking well of him. And they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. What was he talking about? Why was he quoting Isaiah 61? And now these are being fulfilled. And they were, they were wondering about this. And they were saying is, now that, here's the response. Now this is key. Is this not Joseph's son? Immediately they're thinking, well, uh, 
He's saying some amazing things, some things that our hearts have longed for. We have longed to get out from underneath the oppression of these Romans. We've longed for our Messiah to appear. Is, is this, could this possibly be him? And yet, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, this couldn't be. I mean, this is Joseph's son. He's one, I mean, he's one of us. We, we've seen him grow up. We've seen him work as a carpenter with his father. I mean, this, this, this couldn't be until they were beginning to contemplate this. And then Jesus simply says this immediately. Now we're gonna we're gonna get into this this morning. Why, why did Jesus have to respond this way? They were already speaking well of him. Why did he have to respond in such a in such a harsh way? He said, "No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well." Now they hadn't said this. This was Jesus. He knew what was in their hearts. And he began to say, I know what's in your hearts. And you'll see this throughout the ministry of Jesus, God. This is actually a claim to divinity. Is Jesus can read people's mail, man. He can, he can absolutely see what's going on in there between their ears. And they haven't said any of this. He says, but I know what's in your hearts. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, now he's setting the record straight here. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now he's going back hundreds of years to the, to the well-known prophet Elijah, and he will also refer to Elisha. He said, Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three months, three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, the skies were shut up. Here's Israel's prophet, and he wasn't sent to any of the Israelites. He's sent to a woman of Zarephath from, from Sidon. Now, that's offensive. This is like a racial slur in their mind. They are deeply offended at this statement that he's making. And then he doesn't stop there, and he says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. If you remember the story of Elisha and Gazi, and kind of Gazi had run after him after he'd been healed, and he was offended. You know, here's a Syrian. He's offended that Elisha would tell him to go down and wash in a little pathetic river here in Israel. This was a, a small river. I could have done this back home, and... And his servant you know, really said, look, what would, if he had asked you to have done something extraordinary, wouldn't you have done it? And he went down and cleansed himself in the river and he was healed of his leprosy. But he wasn't even from the nation of Israel. Here are the two great prophets, two of the greatest prophets of all Israel's history, Elijah and Elisha. And both of them, Jesus said, said were being sent to people outside the nation. And all the people in the synagogue, those that had just said, oh, what gracious words, and they were speaking well of him, and watch how fickle they are, they immediately turn on him, those in the synagogue, and they were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, and they drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went on his way. Now, this is an amazing. Again, Jesus, the scroll, and then the edge of a cliff. 
how quickly we can turn. What were the dynamics going on? I want to look into some of the dynamics. What was going on in their head? And then why such a harsh response from Jesus? I mean, he had the he had an audience that was, you know, clapping for him. Oh, this is our hometown guy, and he was such a gracious guy, and they were speaking well of him. Hasn't he done his job? You know, sometimes I think about that. You know, it's imper- it's so important for somebody like myself or Paul or whoever may stand in this pulpit before you as a teacher. It's important for us to go verse by verse. One of the reasons that I often take time and we'll go through entire books is so that we can't skip anything. Because as a human being, I love to talk to people and have them speak well of me and have gracious words and always encourage them. And always. But sometimes the message is corrective. Sometimes the message of Jesus and his words, to get healing, it requires some, well, it requires that, We're confronted with our own hearts. It's important to go verse by verse. So what was going on with these folks? What what, what was going on in their heart? Well, number one, I think clearly they were just too familiar with Jesus. They had seen him growing up. They They couldn't imagine. That's why Jesus, I know what's going on in your hearts, and I know you will say to me, physician, heal yourself. Perform these miracles. He and no prophet is welcome in his hometown. He knew that they were going to struggle with familiarity. It's really the case that uh, you know when we any time that God wants to speak, how would He speak? Well, He would love to speak directly to your heart, but sometimes we're unavailable to hear His voice, and so maybe He sends a messenger, and the messenger through a message or just something you see or a friend or somebody. And you're too familiar. You can easily build a case against the person that's bringing you the message. They were so familiar with him that they just couldn't see him. They were already had a, a preconceived idea. Isn't this just Joseph's son? You know, social, social psychologists, there's a, something called the anchoring effect. We tend to be anchored to our first ideas or perceptions, and it deeply colors how we view things in the future from that particular source. And it can happen in many different ways. Uh, The anchoring effect. As an example, maybe it's uh, with prices. Uh, Laura and I had to get a couple of uh, appliances that have been broken in our home. Uh, An oven and a little stovetop. And so we'd kind of been waiting and waiting, and finally Laura just said, look, I, my oven's broken. I, I need the two if we cook a dinner and people come over. And, and then we've had to light a fire under our little gas range uh, stovetop there. And so finally we've broken down. We kind of put the money together. We ordered it, and now we have to get it installed. I, know how, I have no idea how much it would call, cost to install these two things. So something has to anchor me. And so I have a friend, uh, one of our elders, and they were having this put in and I asked him how much it cost them. And he, he told me it was like $400 or something or whatever it is. And, uh, and so immediately that put an anchor in my mind. Now, if he would have told me $2,000 or $50, it would have immediately given me an anchor. If he told me $100 and then I find out it was $500, I would have been very discouraged. I would have thought, oh, this is terrible because I had already had a perception in my mind. I was so, I had familiarized myself, I thought, with an appropriate amount. 
But if he had told me 2,000 and then I, and we did, we called somebody this week and tried to set up something and they're going to, can't get to us for a couple of weeks. But they, they said, look, uh, if they, if we thought it was 2,000 and they said it was four or $500, then boy, we thought we were getting a deal. I mean, our, our whole, our whole perception, we were, we had an anchor in terms of price and that can be the case. Uh, it can be also as it relates to, uh, your reputation. You know, there's something, again, social psychologists, they call the argument from authority. Uh, McRaney, I've read his book uh, to you. I've quoted his book. I think it's fascinating. I'm just interested in the social psychology. And uh, he calls it this argument from authority. And there's a tendency, listen to what he says in his book, You Are Not So Smart. He, he said, this is powerful. And, and it relates to what we're talking about because we too can become too familiar with our Bible, too familiar with church, too familiar with maybe um, others around us who might want to speak into our lives, too familiar with Jesus himself. We're just kind of familiarized. Ah, we, get, we, got, we have certain perceptions. Maybe you grew up in a particular uh, denomination and they, they had a slant towards this and they didn't believe in any kind of supernatural activity of God or that God would speak to you. So you're, you already have a preconceived idea. And uh, they seemed authoritative and they had credentials. I mean, it's one thing to have someone that would suggest to you that they're, they're really studied and they have a expertise in the field and you would take their advice, a, a doctor, for instance. But we tend to, because people, either celebrity or, or because they have something in their mind which gives them a certain amount of authority and we, we give them all this amazing latitude to speak into our lives, even if they don't have any particular expertise in what they're talking about. Jesus is really challenging the preconceived notions they have not only of himself, but also he's challenging the notions that they have about themselves. They were the race. It was their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was, it was all about them. And Jesus was challenging that. Listen to what McRaney says about this idea of the, uh, of the argument from authority. Listen to what he says. He says, you naturally look to those in power as having something special you lack, a spark of something you would like to see inside yourself. This is why people sometimes subscribe to the beliefs of celebrities who endorse exotic religions or denounce sound medicines. If you feel more inclined to believe something is true, because it comes from a person with prestige, you're letting the argument from authority spin your head. If something is controversial, it usually means there are many experts who disagree. You would be wise to come to your own conclusions based on the evidence, not the people delivering it. On the other hand, if there's widespread consensus, you can relax your skepticism. Just don't relax completely. If a celebrity basketball player tells you to buy a particular brand of batteries, ask yourself if the basketball player seems like an expert on electrochemical energy storage units before you take the player's word. We tend to, again, we tend to anchor our ideas and then we have preconceived notions about authority and who, who's, who has the authority. And Jesus is challenging this at every turn. They've become too familiar. There's another aspect of the anchoring effect too, just as it relates to lifestyle. You know, once you've established something in your life, it's very different to move away from that and especially to move backwards. I've, I've often told uh, folks, you know, I, I, 
I got used to flying economy for years and people say, well, why don't you fly? Somebody can pay for it and fly business class. I said, if I ever move up to business class, I'm never going to be able to move back. And it's true in lifestyle. And by the way, I finally did fly an international flight, business class, and I'm telling you, I cannot go back to economy. I just can't. So I'd rather not fly than try to fly economy because I've tasted of the, of the goodness. So there, there's something already anchored in me. And I've become familiar with a business class on an international flight, and it just makes it so much better. I'm a big advocate of business class if you can, if you can pull it off. So look, this is just how we are. They were so familiar with Jesus. They were anchored to the perception, isn't this just Joseph's son, that they couldn't conceive. And equally, they were anchored to the idea that they were, in fact, God's chosen people, which they were for a task to the exclusion of the rest of the world, especially their arch enemies in their history, whether it be Naaman the Syrian or the Sidonians or uh, the, this woman who came from Zarephath. I mean, they just couldn't. And so they were, Jesus was challenging their familiar attitudes at every point. Number two, well, he rejected what he knew was going to be their request to prove himself. Are you in that same category? Are you too familiar? And then are you constantly in a position where you too are challenging Jesus over and over, prove yourself, prove yourself. One day I believe, the next day I need more proof. I'm committed to Jesus, the next day I began to falter in my faith, prove yourself. Okay, I'm going to do this, or if you don't heal this person, or if you don't provide in this way, or if you don't constantly, the, the this this notion that we want Jesus to prove himself. Now, there's nothing wrong with a daily interaction with Jesus where he manifests himself to you, but this, this concept of I'm either prove yourself or I'm going to disbelieve is something that affected Israel, and it's something that affected them with their prophets, and ultimately would affect them with Jesus himself. And I, we have to be so cautious uh, we, you have to drive your stake in the ground and say, look, if, there's, if nothing ever goes my way again, I feel that none of my prayers are answered. You're still the risen Messiah. You're still my only hope. And once you do that and you have that settled disposition, it's transformative in your life. And then you're not, you know, like a ship, as James talked about, tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by everything that comes your way. You're settled on who Jesus is. He no longer has to, quote-unquote, prove himself. Now, what about Jesus? Why did Jesus respond in such a seemingly harsh way? Again, these people were speaking well of him. Why didn't he just go with that? Why did he have to turn? Because Jesus cared about them. He had to confront their ideas, their ideas about themselves and their ideas about him. He had to do it. Otherwise, they were going to find themselves far removed from God's plans in the earth, and they would never be transformed by his grace because of their disbelief. So it's important to see, too, that Jesus was also advocating a world movement. He had to, he had to take their familiar idea about their God and their God only caring about them and their God being against the enemy and had to begin to reform their thoughts and say, this is a world movement. It's clearly more, it's more than just being 
about a hometown celebrity or any of that. This is about God coming through this Messiah, through Jesus, what he just quoted from Isaiah 61. This is about something much more grand than just your local interests. And he also knew about their heart. Have you ever thought about the fact that God knows your heart? God knows your thoughts. God knows. I don't know why we try to hide from God. We're still in the garden, well, Garden of Eden. We're still leaves and trying to cover ourselves. And, you know, we're, we're always trying to cover ourselves up. Why? Because somehow we still perceive that we can hide our actions and our activities from God. God. The Bible talks over and over about God knowing the heart. Listen to just a few of these verses. Proverbs 15, 11. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Your heart lies open before the Lord's eyes. Jeremiah 20, verse 12. Yet, O Lord host, you test the righteous. You see the mind and you see the heart. Matthew 12, 25, and knowing their thoughts, as we'll see over and over in the Gospel of Luke, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. By the way, do you saw, they didn't even say these things. They didn't say, hey, heal thyself. They didn't say a prophet has no, you know, they didn't ask for a miracle, but they were already thinking and conspiring in their heart. Can I just talk to you about a little bit about the cyclicality of the human heart? It's very predictable. God knows our fallen state. He understands it. And he knows the antidote to our fallen state. We're, your experience is not too unique to the experience of everybody else. Your, your temptations, your struggles, your, are not, are, they're common to man, the Bible says. So you've got to understand, God understands he fashioned you in your mother's womb. He also understands your fallen state. He knows your heart. Don't run from him this morning. Don't run. Mark 2.8, immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said, why are you reasoning these things in your heart? He could read their mail. Again, a picture of Jesus' claim to divinity and his, his actually support for his divinity because he could read their hearts. Luke 6.8, as we'll see, in weeks to come, he knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. Luke 16, 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And then lastly, John 2, 25. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. God knows what's inside of you. He knows how you operate. And he knows the best path for you. And sometimes confrontation with your familiar attitudes towards Christianity, towards him, towards, towards your friends, your family. Sometimes we become too familiar. And, and we don't realize that there's an anchoring effect that's holding us back, maybe, from what God has for us. And uh, it's a powerful way to understand why God, again, responded in the way in which he did. So I think what's important to see here is next, and I just want to make this point, people are fascinated by eloquence. Even if the message is weak, if somebody can get up and be articulate and eloquent, and, 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 I've, and I've listened to a lot of folks through the years, 
and so many are so much more eloquent than I am, and I, and I love listening to them. It's almost like a song as they, as they speak, public speaking. They're just phenomenal in their ability to, to just capture all of this and communicate it in such a vibrant and dynamic way. People are attracted to eloquence until until you begin to challenge their kingdoms, until you begin to challenge their preconceived ideas. And we see this over and over in scripture. People are always looking for something wonderful to listen to. Let me, let me just take you to a few places, and yet their hearts are a million miles away from God. This happened to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 12, 1 and 2. Listen, this was Jeremiah's prayer. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why is the way of the wicked prospered? And why are those who deal in treachery at ease? You've planted them and they've taken root and they grow and they've produced fruit. And he's just saying, I've seen all this injustice in the world. And then Jeremiah says, look, you're, you're near to their lips, but you're a million miles away from their minds. In other words, they will speak, they will love things that support their current condition. But you're not really in their minds. They're just looking for something, to, a self-confirming bias that they have, that they're wonderful and everything is great and grand. And that's not the way Jesus deals with us. It's not the way he deals with me. But it's how I want him to deal with me. I want him to say, everything you're doing, Jeff, is perfect and great and grand and you loving the right things and all this kind of Typically, it's not the way of the cross. He's always confronting me. Daily, he's confronting my own selfishness. Let's think about Paul when he went to, when he went to Athens and he, he was before the Areopagus. This was a very interesting group of characters. That Verse 21 says that they used to come together just so they could hear something new. They were always People like something new, something entertaining, something that they haven't seen before. Why go and study this Bible Day after day, it's the same message, you know, the same. I mean, how can you study one book for all of your life? I mean, isn't that crazy? I want to hear something new, and that's kind of where they came from. Listen to verse 16 and 17 of Acts 17. And again, to touch on this point, we're drawn to confirming things for us, articulate, intelligent, uh, eloquent people, but don't confront our kingdoms. Listen to what he says. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Okay, so that's what was going on. He was coming in. They loved to hear something new. Oh, we, what, Paul, wonderful. Let's, you got something new for us? You know, you're a Jew, something coming out of Jerusalem? Let's hear it. We'd love to hear it. I'm sure they were very entertained by this until, verse 30 through 32, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, he's coming to the end of his kind of his, his conversation with them. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, should turn around, quit going the direction that you're going because he's affixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man that he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So now he begins to talk about judgment and the need to turn around, to repent, to go the other direction. You're chasing the wrong thing. Their kingdoms were challenged. And what was their response? Before, oh, we love this. Wonder What a wonderful message. But how, how then did they respond? They responded exactly like, it's the way human beings are. Just like they did at the synagogue at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
oh, they're all speaking well of him, and he's being fulfilled, and this is all about us. And then he, he flips and challenges their anchors in their lives, and, and all of a sudden they respond like this. He says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we will hear you again concerning this. And that's always the way it is. If I'm doing my job, there are going to be some people that get up from a Sunday service or an evening or whatever. Some are going to get up and they're going, oh, what wonderful words. And others are going to get up and they're going to begin to sneer. And they're going to find a reason to hate what was said. And they, they may point the finger at me. They may point the finger at our church. They may point the finger. Sometimes I do fail and I don't do something maybe as I should. But if it's actually a reflection of God's will, it's always going to elicit in people their kingdoms are being confronted. They're going to sneer. They're going to find a reason to dismantle that person. Isn't this just a golf pro, right? Isn't this, or isn't this just a stay-at-home mom? What right does she have to speak into my life like that? Isn't that person didn't go to seminary? They're not trained in all this. They don't have the the, the insight and the expertise. We can, we can bring people down at all levels when we feel confronted in our own kingdoms. And we'll use this kind, of, this kind of bias that we saw earlier in doing that. Too familiar. How about Mark chapter 6? Same kind of dynamic going on here. Verse 18 and 20. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So he, they're being confronted with their own sin. Then Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, and she couldn't do so, for Herod was afraid of John. Okay, so we've got, wow, we've got good and bad, right? They, they hate John, they, but listen, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was perplexed, but catch this, but he, was used, he used to enjoy listening to him, right? He's just fascinated with this. That's the fickle nature of the world. I'm interested in what this guy has to say as long as he doesn't confront my kingdom. In this case, Herod's desire to sleep with whoever he wanted to and just to flaunt convention and marriage and the institution and everything, he's going to do what he's going to do. And we've got to understand that. So is this the nature of people? Are we fickle? Are we strange? Are we just so easily moved by things? Of course we are. In fact, Paul, again, told Timothy, and I've quoted this many times. It's a cautionary tale for me. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they won't simply endure sound doctrine. They don't want to be confronted with their kingdoms. And wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth. And they will turn what? They will turn aside to myths. You know, when we, we imagine ourselves, uh, again, we imagine ourselves to just always deal with the facts and deal with everything, but you've got to understand, that is not human nature. When we don't just deal with the facts on the ground, we tend to buy into anything, and they did. They bought into myths, but they were looking for what? Ear-tickling people, right? self-confirming speakers that confirmed them in everything that they did, every pursuit that they had. And that's why we have to be so cautious against any Christian teacher who would stand up and just confirm where everybody is and tell them that God loves them and that there's no, you know, that just pursue their dreams and all this kind of mentality. That is not the gospel. 
Yes, God has plans for you. Yes, they're extraordinary. Yes, they're gracious and wonderful and beautiful, but they always involve a cross. We don't know what's best for us. Jesus, in fact, does. And that's what he was doing here in Nazareth. So much love shown them that they were going to drive him to the edge of a cliff. So look, we're constantly tempted to compartmentalize Jesus, aren't we? I mean, we love his gracious words, but again, when he, when he confronts our unbelief, our desire to, to in some way limit his activities in our lives, sometimes we may do this through ta- attacking the institutional church or messengers or people who speak into our lives or whatever it may be. We can always familiar, familiarize ourselves with somebody to where we can discount them. Most of the time, but folks don't even realize they're doing it. They're they're not in the business of doing what Jesus was called to do, to destroy the works of the devil. Most live in today's world, most live in powerlessness. They just do. They find reasons to minimize their call. They inadvertently become small faith people. Every time Jesus confronts their minimization tactics. It's just about us. It's just about Israel. It's just about Nazareth. It's just about our hometown boy. We were going to plot him. We love your words. But boy, when they're confronted with their own, their own agendas, they minimize Jesus. In fact, they want to throw him off a cliff. Now, here's the point. Do you have a tendency to want to throw Jesus off the cliff sometimes? Now, no. Hey, no good Christian would say, I, I want to throw Jesus off the cliff. But I can tell you there are times when he speaks into my life through his word or through, you know, through prayer or something. And I don't say, ah, I don't want that. And I kind of I dislodge him. Now, I might I'll never say I want to throw Jesus off the cliff, certainly. But in practice, I kind of do that. I, I kind of, well, push Jesus out of, the, out of the picture here. And if they're on the brow of a hill, well, you know, he's, he'll save himself. But push him off the cliff. And they used to do that. They would push people off cliffs and they would come down. Many times they wouldn't be dead. These are stark cliffs. I've actually taught a message similar to this in Nazareth. And you can look over and you can kind of see that may have been where it was. It's kind of a, it's not gentle, but it's a hill. And the only time they would fall down the hill, but they'd still be alive. And then they'd go down and stone them. I mean, this was an unbelievable scenario that had played out here in Nazareth. But something that we'll see over and over in the life of Jesus. Oh, we love him, but we hate him because he's confronting us. He's he's doing these kinds of things. This too is the case, in closing, as we start to wind this down, with the prophet Ezekiel. Now, we're going to have some of our dear friends, uh, Eric and Liz Stankus, and we have a special guest appearance this morning by Madison and Mackenzie, and their family is going to now read for us what was going on during the ministry of Ezekiel. It's the same story we get. We get this repeated over and over and over. Interested in eloquence and articulation, but don't confront us where we are. So, Eric and Stanka's family, would you please go ahead and read Ezekiel 33, 30 through 33. Thank you. Hello, Church of the Red Door. This is the Stanka's family. This is, my name's Eric. This is my wife, Liz. This is Madison and little Mackenzie, and we're going to read Ezekiel 33, verse 30 through 33. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses. 
saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them to practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy and for unjust gain. Verse 32. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. We miss you all and hope to see you again really soon. Well, thank you, Maddie and uh, Mac and Cheese there. I appreciate the kids and Liz and, and Eric. Uh, thank you so much for reading that. Did you see what they were saying? The same thing was happening with Ezekiel. They were saying, oh, what gracious words, what wonderful words, so intelligent, you know, intelligent and articulate and eloquent. It was like a sensual song. It's like a, a beautiful voice that plays on an instrument. But they hear your words and they don't practice them. They hear your words and they don't practice. So God has to intervene and sometimes judgment comes into our lives. Look, Jesus just loves us so much that he is... Well, he's willing to challenge all of our perceived ideas of comfort and, and religious privilege and all these things. He was, it was the case for Israel. It was the case for the prophets. God did this through the prophets prior to Jesus, and he's still doing it today. He, he cares about you. He wants the, the wholeness of shalom to come on your life, and so there are areas that have to be honed into his image. Sometimes we don't like it, so we have a tendency to push Jesus out of the picture. And if there's a cliff there, well, yeah, we kind of push Jesus off the cliff. We have to be so cautious. It is, again, the fallen nature of man, and yet it is the way of God to confront us in those ways. Sometimes it's been said that God loves to, uh, to what? To comfort the afflicted, but sometimes he afflicts the comfortable. It's just the way God operates. Why? Because he's in the, he is in the business now of restoring a people for himself to live with for all of eternity. You've begun the restoration process now. Yes, in one sense, you're a new creature in Christ the day you give your life to Jesus and you're filled with the Spirit. But on the other hand, you're being conformed to his image. And that, again, is a cross-bearing activity. So, have there been times in your life maybe that you've kind of killed the messenger or pushed Jesus off the cliff or maybe Jesus was in the form of somebody else? I don't believe in going to church anymore. Or it's a bunch of hip hypocrites or I don't believe in, you know, reading the Bible. I don't believe I don't believe in that or this or that. And there have been times that you've pushed the messenger off the cliff even though it may not have been a literal Jesus. Jesus might have come through the uh, and used his words through another person and you're like, eh, "I don't know about that." I like the sensual, eloquent part of that, and those are gracious words that are confirming me, but boy, when you confront me, I don't like that. I'll find a reason to go go to another church, go hear, another, hear somebody else articulate it. And Paul, again, was trying to tell Timothy, be cautious. They're going to look to surround themselves with teachers who tickle their ears, who confirm their own bias and their own uh, familiar patterns. That's important to understand. That's what's happening here, right? It's not just... All oh, those Jews, they were, you know, Jewish people, they were bad people and they rejected Jesus and all that. Look, this is a story for all of us. It's a cautionary tale for all of us that we have the same propensity.
Do you also, in closing, understand that Jesus knew exactly what was going to go, and he knew he was going to suffer persecution to the point of even going to the cross? What you need to settle this morning is that it will be impossible, impossible for you to journey with Jesus in a real profound and meaningful and authentic way to take the whole message of this life and have your life be a living testimony to the gospel of Jesus without being misunderstood, without being maybe attacked in, in some way or even truly persecuted. It will be impossible for you to stand at the, at the crossroads caring about people's lives without rejection, persecution, misunderstanding, false accusation. It will be impossible for that to occur in your life. There's something very liberating about coming to the point that you really internalize that and you say, you know, that's true. I'm just going to have to embrace it. Jesus called it a cross. I embrace that I'm going to be misunderstood if I am the one who stands in the gap for someone and doesn't just sing them a sensual song or play for them an eloquent violin and just tell them everything's wonderful and that God's just a God of love and all of us are God's children. And you hear this just, you just hear this refrain throughout culture. And that's why, again, people are so drawn to much of the Eastern mysticism and a lot of these other things, these pseudo-religions that emerge because they're playing sensual songs. The gospel is a, is a sword. It divides. It's difficult. The word of God is difficult, and it confronts us at every turn. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy simply this. He says, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus knew it. He's going to confront all their preconceived ideas about themselves and about him. We should know it. We're going in to confront people's familiar patterns, people's entrenched ways of doing life. They're anchored to certain things. And when we confront that, it is always disconcerting for them. And they may turn around and they may try to take you to the brow of a cliff and push you off. Once you settle that in your heart, that that's just going to be the path that you will journey, you will take. Jesus said, if they persecuted the teacher, they're going to persecute the students. In this life, you will have affliction. You will have persecution. Once you settle yourself in that, can I just say it's quite liberating. It's not always fun. But it's never fun, but it's liberating. To say, I just know I'm going to be this person. This is what we get from this story. So, two questions for you this morning. Have you pushed, not literally Jesus, but Jesus' voice? Have you pushed that voice off a cliff, whether it comes through somebody else or comes through your reading of the word? Have you pushed that off of a cliff? Have you done that in your own life? Have And then secondly... Have you devoted yourself to be one who would allow themselves to be mistreated in certain ways because you love people so much? Jesus loved those in the synagogue. He loved them, but he confronted them out of love. 
So anyway, I hope that's uh, helpful and we'll again progress, God willing, next week on into the rest of, of this chapter. We'll conclude it and then maybe even press on into five. So uh, I hope this has been helpful, uh, insightful. I'm now going to turn this morning because again, it's our first Sunday of the month to Pastor Paul and we're going to have communion this morning. So Pastor Paul, take it away. God bless you, Church of the Red Door. We love you so much.